All right, please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy 6. A couple of weeks ago, we spoke on the issue of contentment, and we took special care in that time to highlight the reality that contentment is not a principle that speaks to how little or how much you have, but rather a principle that speaks to how your heart interplays with the things that you do or do not have. That it is just as possible to be rich and to be discontent as it is to uh, be poor and discontent, or to be poor and discontent as it is to be rich and discontent, and vice versa simultaneously for contentment itself. And in many ways, we continue on this theme. Uh, We continue on contentment, drawing deeper into this idea of money, as last week we considered this idea of them that will be rich falling into temptation and a snare, and the love of money being that root of all evil. We continue in verse 11 through verse 16 this morning, and I'm going to go back to verse 9 for context. The Bible says this, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Verse 11, But thou, O man of God, Flee these things, and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. Now, as we step into verse 11, it becomes apparent that we have somewhat of an audience shift here. Recall back in verses 6 through 8, Paul wrote this, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for, notice this, we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us... Be there with content. Notice here the generality of Paul's instructions. Paul uses the first person plural pronoun we, indicating at the least that Paul is including himself in the exhortations, but more generally, we would probably understand this to be a generalization. The we comes across generalized, that no man has brought anything into this world, no man can take anything out with him, therefore let us, right, that first person personal pronoun, plural pronoun, let us be content. But as we get into verse 11, notice the narrowing, but thou, O man of God, but thou, O man of God. One of the great benefits to the King James Version of the Bible as it relates to other versions in English, other English translations, is in their wisdom and foresight, the King James translators sought to carry as much of the original language over in their translation as possible. And one of those things is pronoun reference. In English, unlike many other languages, uh, English does not have a unique subset of words for second person singular and second person plural. Like with most languages, the Greek and the Hebrew have singular and plural versions of the pronouns. In English, we have this first person plural or first person singular pronouns, I, me, my, mine, myself. And then the first person plural pronouns, we, our, ours, us, ourselves, right? And then we have the third person singular pronouns, he, she, it, and the third person plural pronouns, they, them, their. But we don't have in English distinct grammatical second person singular and second person plural pronouns. They're both indicated with the same set of pronouns, you, your, yours, yourselves. But this is not the case in Greek and Hebrew. In Greek and Hebrew, like any of the other personal pronouns, there's a different word that indicates a second person singular and a second person plural. In Hebrew and uh, in Greek, but by the time Koine Greek was there, it was pretty well gone. Uh, The language had, as with all languages, devolved over time. So if you go back to the classical literature of Aristotle and Plato, uh, you'll find that in Hebrew and then in that classical Greek, there's also a construction, a, a pronoun called the dual. So you'd have second person singular, second person dual, and second person plural. And so a singular would be one, dual would be two, plural would be three or more people. You don't see that in our King James Bible in the Greek. You do see it in the Hebrew and Aramaic of the Old Testament, the, the dual. But to this end, the King James translators, were they sought for a way 
to help the reader understand this uniqueness of the Greek language. How is it that you can carry over the fact that Greek not only has first person singular and plural and third person singular and plural, but also second person singular and plural, how can you carry that over into English in a consistent manner that will help the reader understand their Bibles better? And the King James translators chose to use something which had already fallen somewhat out of daily vernacular, which was the words the, thou. And so they, and thine, right? So they chose thee, thou, and thine, and they said, we're going to make that the pronoun for second person singular, and then we'll make you, your, your, yours, the pronoun for second person plural. So that as we're walking through our New Testaments in the King James Bible, whenever you see, well, even actually in the Old Testament as well, when you're reading in the King James Bible and you see a thee, a thou, and the there, or thee, thou, and, and thine, excuse me, it's not there simply to be old, right? It's there because it distinguishes between a second person singular word and a second person plural. And this is one of those contexts where it really helps us because Paul is initially speaking of us, right? We brought nothing into this world and in certain we can carry nothing out and having food and raiment let us be there with content. And then he transitions here, but thou O man of God. Now we know, and we don't just need to know contextually, we can know grammatically that Paul is now speaking singularly to Timothy. But thou, O man of God. And this is a tremendous benefit, and it's one of the things that we so deeply appreciate about our King James Bibles. We see this shift here, and we know that Paul is directing these words toward Timothy. And our knowledge that this relates to his calling and his ministry is twofold. The clearest evidence that we'll see that Paul is speaking here to Timothy as a minister will be found in verse 12. But we also do see it here in this descriptive label that Paul gives to Timothy, O man of God. This is a very rare phrase in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, we only see it two times in our New Testament, and both of them are in the Timothys, one here in 1 Timothy, the other in 2 Timothy. But the phrase is actually quite common if we were to add the Old Testament into the mix, isn't it? Man of God. And I want to begin by thinking about that Old Testament context, and then we'll work our way into this New Testament idea. The phrase man of God is found 76 times in the Old Testament over 71 verses. It's used in every case to speak of one who is a minister of the Lord. A couple of them you might say could be ambiguous, where it could be speaking of a minister of the Lord, or it could just be speaking more generally, but there's so many cases of it being used as a minister of the Lord, I feel confident saying, and there's no cases that are explicitly not, that I feel confident saying that in every case it speaks to a minister of the Lord, and more specifically, a prophet of the Lord. The label was given to Moses. It was given to Shemaiah. It was given to Elijah. It was given to Elisha. It was given to any number of anonymous prophets where in the Kings and the Chronicles, you'll read about a man of God coming to the king and telling him that something was about to happen. And there are various unnamed men of God. You don't even know their names. They're a man of God. They come on the scene. They say what they're going to say. They, come, they, they leave the scene and you have no idea who they were. They're simply called the man of God. It was also a reference. Uh, David was also used in this reference. And we know David to have uh, been a prophet in his own right, um, as many of the Psalms are deeply prophetic. The phrase, man of God. To this end, I believe it can be said quite confidently that man of God was used in the Old Testament to speak toward those who were in the prophetic ministry, uh, not emphasizing the foretelling element of the prophetic ministry, but rather the foretelling element, that these men were men who were commissioned by God to speak the word of God before others. The foretelling ministry of the prophet, that God raised up a man and called him to be a voice of God crying out to kings, crying out to the people, representing the will and the word of God to those who needed to hear it. And this was how the Old Testament used this term, man of God. The man of God was a truth teller, a man who set aside his own personal expectations and uh, priorities in order that he would speak forth the word of God. He forsook the dangers and disregarded the consequences that the truths of God's word would go to those whom God desired to hear. 
and they did this job faithfully. Now, we cannot but carry this moniker into the New Testament when we see that it's only used in the pastoral epistles. Only used in 1st and 2nd Timothy, and only used twice. Once here in 1st Timothy 6, verse 11, and the other time in 2nd Timothy 3, 16 and 17. This is interesting. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, these verses say, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction of righteousness, in righteousness, excuse me, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. This verse comes at the end of a direct exhortation to Timothy, just as we see in our passage this morning. In both contexts of these passages, and we'll be moving on to 2 Timothy when 1 Timothy is over in a couple of weeks, so we'll get here eventually. But in both uh, of these contexts, we see Paul directly exhorting Timothy and directly in regard to the nature of his ministry. In verse 14 of 1 Timothy uh, 3, 2 Timothy 3, uh, excuse me, it is 1 Timothy 3. I keep saying 2 Timothy. 1 Timothy. So we, we've already seen this. My apologies. Um, uh, but in, in uh, verse 14, Paul called Timothy to continue thou in the things that thou hast learned. And then he speaks to the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures to be for him all that he needs. No, it is 2 Timothy. Now I'm getting myself all confused. Yes, it's 2 Timothy. So that says 1 Timothy. It's not supposed to say 1 Timothy. I was just sitting there thinking as I was saying that, I've not pre I'm sure I haven't preached that yet. And how did I get through that passage without talking about inspiration and preservation? It couldn't have happened. So it is 2 Timothy. We will get there. Um, and I apologize. It's wrong on the screen there. That's, that should be a 2 Timothy. So Paul's telling Timothy there, continue thou in the things which thou hast learned. And then he speaks of the sufficiency of the Holy Scriptures to be for him all that he needs in order to accomplish that commission. Now, we use these verses and we broaden this concept, right? That obviously it's not just for the pastor that the Word of God is sufficient. But that is the context there. That the man of God may be perfect and truly furnished unto all good works. That as a minister, I don't need to be going to the philosophies of man the ideologies of man. I don't need to be digging into the muck and the mud of, of human reasoning to get those things which are necessary in order for me to accomplish the purpose of, for, uh, of, of, of forth telling the Word of God. Because the Word of God in itself is profitable. It's profitable for doctrine and reproof and correction and instruction in righteousness. And so we see this same context here to the extent that even as we look at the two Timothys and the Timothy precedent, there's no reason for us to step outside of this interpretive framework that when we see that word man of God, we're talking about a man who has been commissioned unto a ministry of teaching and telling the word of God. So it's for that reason that we would initially begin to think, okay, Paul is speaking to Timothy. We know that because we have the the. And he's speaking to him directly in the relationship that he has as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's where we come into our interpretive framework for this idea. That like the Old Testament prophet of old, who was commissioned to stand before the most powerful men in the land, men who had direct and exclusive power over life and over death, over pain and over pleasure, and speak to them the truths of God's word, whatever the cost. So, too, this is the commission of the man of God. This is the commission of the minister of the gospel. We have considered it in many contexts, many different contexts throughout the book, that the calling of ministry is not a light calling, that the ministry is not simply a vocation to be chosen. It's a calling to be embraced, that it comes with direct qualifications as enumerated in 1 Timothy chapter 3, but it also comes with tremendous sacrifices. And I do not say these things to levy any particular virtue upon the called minister. The fact that the minister has uh, chosen this calling, has, has yielded to this calling, has, uh, has to make certain sacrifices within his life because of that calling does not lend any virtue. To, to the minister himself. But when we see the minister of Jesus Christ called a man of God, we cannot help but draw direct, direct links to those men of God of old. 
the prototypical prophet, such as John the Baptist was, who in his day was in the wilderness in camel's hair, eating locusts and wild honey, having renounced the things of this life in order to be unencumbered to serve the Lord with clarity and distinction, earnest to avoid the distractions of this world, even perhaps especially those things which are not sinful but which might dull the edge of his blade, as it were, things which might consume his time and his energy but which have no bearing upon the calling unto which he has been given. And it is with this earnestness that Paul says to Timothy, flee these things. Now, we are all to flee the love of money, right? We are all to flee that will to be rich. But it's particularly odious among a minister, isn't it? It's particularly out of place when a man, even in today's world, even in the lavish and, and, and relatively large degree of comfort, I mean, I am not a, uh, I'm not on the higher end of the pay scale in society. I'm not on the higher end of pay scale even in this area. And yet, I live and my family lives with five children and one on the way and a fairly low salary quite comfortably because this country is just very abundant, isn't it? Between garage sales, Craigslist, and thrift stores, I can live better than kings 400 years ago. <laughs> Um, it is amazing how much this country has and how much is thrown away that is just fantastic uh, and entirely usable. And so it, 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 it can be a difficult standard, but when you do see ministers, even in the context of our culture, and you see a minister who's really living, living it up, there's just something that seems a little bit off, doesn't it? It just seems a little bit incongruous, like there's something not right about that. And if that's taken too far, then the people in the seats are uncomfortable if they don't see their pastor suffering, and that's not a good plan, right? So that can, it can be taken too far, but simultaneously there is a point where those who read the Word of God and have some measure of expectation as to how, the God, teach, how God teaches about, about ministers and about the things of ministry and such, there's a point where, where you just say, how is that minister who's living in that lavish of a lifestyle, how, how, how is that congruous, right? And that's kind of the idea here. It is not that it is sinful for us to, owe, to have money. And it, within that same context, it's not sinful for a minister to have things. But a minister needs to be doubly careful. As with any element of life, a minister has to be doubly careful. If we go back to 1 Timothy 3 and we go back to the qualifications of a minister, we said very clearly that those qualifications of a minister, the things that a minister is intended to exemplify, with perhaps the exception of apt to teach, almost everything else on that list of expectations for a minister are things that we all ought to be, right? It, it, it's Christian virtues. Not angry, no striker, not given to wine, right? These are things that, that nobody should, should be, a, be a part of as a believer in their lives. These, these are things that all of us should have a handle on. But the minister has the responsibility to set the example. And it's the same with money. That while none of us ought to love money or have that will to be rich because the consequences of that are, are very dire, can be very dire, yet particularly among ministers, we need to set that bar. We need to be careful and we need to watch out because particularly among ministers, those who lead the church, the consequences of falling into this, as we talked about last week, falling into a love of money, a love for money, it doesn't just affect me or my family. It can fundamentally change, can fundamentally destroy the testimony of the church. If I alter my message in order to keep people in the seats because I don't want to lose the givers, if I alter how our church operates in order to appease the bigger givers of the church, if I take gifts, and by taking gifts, I am, by, by, from certain people in the church, I am predisposed to believe them or to be on their side in an element of controversy, then I have thus put myself in a, a compromised position 
as a leader in the church, where now I am weighing what God would have me to do against the material benefits that now I am drawn to by the unique position I've placed myself in. That's the danger here. This is the idea. This is why, as Paul is speaking to Timothy, he says, O man of God, flee these things. Yes, we're all supposed to flee these things, but this is directed specifically toward Timothy here. Timothy, flee these things. Flee the love of money. Flee the will to be rich. Don't just know it exists. Don't just stand against it. As a called man of God, avoid this context of temptation. Stay away from those things which would work in you an almost inevitable propensity to waste your time, to divert your affections, to be drawn into a measure of compromise in your ministry, in the words that you're willing to say, in order to preserve a measure of material prosperity or temporal gain. And to whatever degree any Christian cannot afford to be encumbered by the things of this world, the necessity laid upon ministers in this regard is tenfold. For if I fall short of this great aspiration, I'll be tempted to be silent when instead I should be vocal. I'll be tempted to be still when instead I should be active. And those who rely upon me to proclaim the word of God without compromise will not hear the things that they definitely need to hear. And notice, as we continue in verse 11, the direct contrast. In fleeing these things, the man of God is to follow after another set of things. If you are fleeing these things, the love of money, the will to be rich, uh, being consumed with the things of this world, what is it then that you are supposed to flee toward, run toward, pursue? What is it that is supposed to consume your time? What is it that is supposed to consume your priorities? Well, the virtues of a separated faith. Righteousness, holy living, godliness, spirit-filled living, faith, fundamental obedience to God's commands, love, that chief of all virtues, as we considered last week in our, I believe, our evening service, patience, a steadfast endurance through life's many trials, showing that measure of endurance, and then meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. Meekness is strength harnessed. Meekness is strength directed. Meekness is not when I have no strength. Meekness is when I have taken my strength and in wisdom I have diverted that strength to something that is valuable, something that is worthwhile, and I'm avoiding uh, wasting my strength on those things which simply don't matter. It's these virtues which must define the pursuit of the man of God. Not that he has attained unto them all, but he follows after these things. So the man of God is the man who has in his heart set aside all temptations unto personal aspirations in this life. He fights those things. He's looking for those things. He's, he's cognizant of those things, and he's watching out in order that he may attain into the fullest measure of Christ's life, of his ministry, and of his testimony. This is the concept that Paul espouses. We're going to get there in our evening service and not too long. Uh, I'm going to talk about it again in the evening service next week, and then it'll be several more weeks before we actually preach the passage. But I think the best example of this is given in Philippians chapter 3 as far as the mindset of the minister and what this is supposed to look like. And again, as I say minister, that's the context of this passage, that doesn't mean you all are invalidated from this mindset. This should be your aspiration as well. It's my expectation as a minister. It's your expectation as a believer, and we're all aspiring unto it. So in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 through 12, Paul says this, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. So Paul says that he had from a temporal and material perspective, every advantage. And this is the idea. Paul says to Timothy, flee these things as it relates to the mindset of the will to be rich, as it relates to the love of money. And yet Paul, uh, in Philippians 3, is speaking here not just of money, although he probably had plenty of that too, but he's speaking of power, influence, right? Uh, a good name in society, all of those things. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law, a Pharisee of the stock of Benjamin. So he was a man who was well-established in his culture. 
He had a place. He had a future. He had a material existence, right? He had these advantages. But then he came face to face with the finished work of Christ and there was a natural contradiction between the faith that he was called to have, the, thing, the work that he was called to do in Christ, and the source of these natural advantages unto which he had attained in this life. He came to a point where he realized he couldn't have them both and he had to make a decision. He couldn't be a Pharisee of the Pharisees and a follower of Jesus Christ. At, there was a point where they diverged and he had to make a choice. And so in his mind, in his worldview, in his mindset, in his determination, determination, he had to make a choice. He was going to have to lay some things aside if he wanted to follow Christ. So naturally sin, but more than that, right? It wasn't a sin for him to be this man, circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, touching the law of Pharisee. It wasn't a sin for him to be any of that. But was that still going to be the defining element of his life? Could he live that life and follow Christ as a minister of the gospel? And so we continue. Um, what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ, yea, doubtless. And I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung that I may win Christ and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Notice he goes on in verse 11. If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I also I am apprehended of Christ. Notice carefully here in verse 12. Paul establishes his burden in his mindset in verses 4 through 11. And then he says in verse 12, but I haven't fully attained unto that. I'm not yet perfect. That word not meaning sinlessly perfect, but finished or complete, having all that is necessary unto one's nature or kind. But he says, what I am doing is I'm pursuing it. I'm following after it. And this word, follow after, is the exact same word that Paul uses to exhort Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.11. Timothy, follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness. The same word. Just as Paul says, not as though I had already attained, neither were already perfect, but I'm following after the resurrection of Christ. I'm following after, counting all things but loss and living out that creed. I'm following after this fellowship of his sufferings. I'm following after the power of the resurrection. He says, Timothy, set aside, flee from the love of money, flee from the material, the desire unto the material, the comfort of the material, and follow after the virtues of separated living. The man of God is not a perfect man. The man of God is not the man who has fully attained into the deepest implications and aspirations of his mindset. But the man of God is the man who has committed himself to this mindset, to this aspiration itself. He is the man who follows after that he may apprehend that for which he also is apprehended of Christ. And then he is a man who steps up, he follows after, and he can look with, without any contradiction in his spirit at those who are his flock and say, follow me as I follow Christ. Just as Paul did. Follow me as I follow Christ. And so I seek unto this that I may then exhort you to seek unto this. I live this separated life so that you might be exhorted to do the same. And that's the model. That's the exhortation. That's what Paul is calling Timothy to be here. Flee, O man of God. From these things. Verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto also 
whereunto, excuse me, thou art also called and hast professed a good profession before many witnesses. Notice the strongly active tone of these words. Fight the fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. The idea here is not that the minister is fighting to get into the faith, not trying to grab an elusive promise of eternal life that he simply cannot find. Much to the contrary, we know from Scripture that salvation is not something that can be earned by fighting. Salvation is not something that we need to chase and seize in that sense of laying hold. Salvation has been brought nigh. It is very near, given by grace. It requires only that faith by which a man, setting aside anything and everything that he might be trusting in to secure for himself a relationship with God, to secure for himself eternal life, to secure himself favor with God, and placing his full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus, his death and his burial and his resurrection, to be for him what he cannot be for himself. And any man who will, with all of his heart, place his full faith and trust in that finished work will be saved, the Bible tells us. To this end, it would be completely out of context for Paul to be speaking to Timothy and saying, earn your salvation. Go find your salvation. It doesn't work that way. But that's not the only context within which we see this concept of eternal life. Eternal life, everlasting life, is in one sense spoken of as salvation. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And yet we also find, as we look throughout the scriptures, that life and death are not just contrasted as it relates to heaven and hell. Life and death are contrasted as it relates to fellowship, as it relates to rewards, as it relates to the disposition by which we enter into our heavenly home. And this is what we see here. Just as we saw in our foray into Philippians chapter 3, that there is a difference between the man who is saved, yet so as by fire, and yet has, if I may use the illustration, we'll talk more about it next week, buried his talent in the ground, and the man who has taken his talents and invested them into the kingdom. They may both be servants, but one of them has carried more into eternity than the other. And so when I think of eternal life, I don't just think of my get-out-of-hell-free card. When I think of eternal life, I think of passing from death to life and then from glory to glory, living in such a manner as to lay up for myself treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. And as I lay up treasure in heaven, as I seek first the kingdom of God, I am laying hold on eternal life. I am building those eternal rewards. I am living in that fullness of eternity. Paul is calling Timothy here thus to contend daily for the faith recognizing that though the standard by which one enters into eternal life is a faith in Christ alone, the disposition into which one enters that eternal life, for we who are in Christ, rewards and loss before the throne, these things are, will be very different based upon how we have lived this life. So much so that we cannot but say that this life truly matters for eternity, not just that we be saved, but that we build for eternity those rewards by, as Matthew 6.33 says, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all of those other things will be added unto us. Also in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, as Paul says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called. You've been called into the vocation. You've already stepped foot into everlasting life, now walk worthy of it. Not just for this life, walk worthy of it because it will make a difference in the life that is to come. As a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul was calling Timothy to fight that fight for the faith as he's been commissioned to do, to lay aside the weight, to count all things but loss, to aspire unto the very greatest promises 
of the rewards of eternal life, to know the power of Christ's resurrection, to know the fellowship of Christ's suffering, to count the things which this life might hold and offer nothing but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord, to hold this world loosely for the promises of the life that is to come, to live rooted in the principles of the kingdom of God and to seek unto that country that is made without hands, whose builder and maker is God. That's faith. That's our calling. That's our charge. As Paul would say in Colossians chapter 1, verse 10, walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And perhaps Paul's best description of this concept comes in 1 Corinthians 9, verses 24 through 27. Again, he's not speaking here of salvation. He says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all, but one receiveth the prize? So run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. Now they, that would be the Olympians that Paul was referencing to there, they do it to obtain a corruptible crown, but we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, Paul says, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. You and I are in a race. This race is not salvation. Getting saved is what puts you into the race. If you have not accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are on that broad road that leads to destruction. Many there be that go in thereat. You're not a part of that race. But when you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have entered into, as it were, a race. And the prize of this race is the high calling of God in Christ Jesus, the fullest essence of your eternal reward. To boil this whole exhortation down to a summarizing phrase, it might be this, live up to your calling. Be who you are in Christ. My children are wicklers. My children are uh, pastor's children. My children have any number of positions, as it were. And it's expected that when they are out in public, they are representing the family. They are representing their parents. They are representing themselves. They are representing Christ as a part of the Wickler family. They are representing Legacy Baptist Church, representing Christ for those who are saved. The others aren't, aren't quite there yet. But they're all representing the family. And so I say, you're a Wickler, act like it. All right? The idea there being, look, you've been raised a certain way. There's certain expectations upon you. Live up to those expectations. Look, if you're a part of the family of God, if Jesus, if you, if, if Jesus Christ is your Savior, if God is your God, live like it. Live up to it. Don't, we're not just doing what we're doing for no reason. There's a prize at the end. Paul says, I'm running not as uncertainly. I'm not just running to run. That's one of the most difficult things. Just running for running's sake, right? You have no end line. You're just going to run until you stop running. Or, you know, you get on a track and you're just running in circles. And yeah, you know that there's an end line, but it's only after a certain number of laps. Significantly harder to be motivated when you're running just in a circle than it is when you have a start point and a destination. And you can look toward that destination and say, that's the goal. That's the point. Run toward that point. Paul says there's an end goal. There's a reason for this. You're not just running to run. You're headed toward a destination. You're going for a prize. I'm not just beating the air. That's a boxing analogy, right? So fight I, not as one that beateth the air. I'm not just walking around beating the air. There's a person in front of me. There's something I'm doing here. So go for the prize. Aspire unto that. Live up to your calling. Your calling in Christ. And for Timothy, a calling as a minister of Jesus Christ. And that would be this profession here. The, pro the good profession before many witnesses. Four direct commands there given to him. We'll talk about that more in our application. 
In light of this profession, Paul charges Timothy before God to live it. So he says in verses 13 through 16, I give thee charge in the sight of God, who quickeneth all things and before Christ Jesus, who before Pontius Pilate witnessed a good confession, that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, dwelling in light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen. We serve the God who quickeneth all things. That word quicken meaning to make alive. He is the God that gave life to all. Whether a person ever accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior or not, whether they ever regard God or not, God gives them life. God has given life to all that is. When we glean this perspective, it ought to change things. We stand before Jesus Christ, who himself witnessed a good profession, speaking of Jesus' determination even to yield his own life for the will of the Father as he spoke before Pontius Pilate. And Paul says, let us obey him. Let us live without spot. Let us live unrebukable. Let us lay aside the sin. Let us lay aside the weights. Let us be faithful, because there's coming a day when our Lord will return. And the things we did in this life will matter on that day. We'll see that true authority does not rest with the governments of this world. We'll see that true reward does not rest with the material possessions and consolations of this life. These things, the things that we ought to seek to, the things that are real are in heaven. More real than the seats you're sitting in. More real than the clothes that you're wearing. More real than the money in your bank account are the things that God has laid up in store for his people. Are those spiritual realities of the life that is to come. And when we recognize that we stand before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who only has immortality, dwelling in light which no man can approach unto, and that glorious God, that separated God, that God who needs nothing, who has everything within himself, within the Godhead, he has everything that he needs. He does not need us. And when we think of this and we recognize that that God yet loved us so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for us to redeem us from the world asking for us this reasonable service that we would be on the altar for him. It kind of changes things, doesn't it? when we have that perspective, when we recognize and are, are enlightened to the reality that it is not the things of this world that truly matter. They are here, then they're gone, they burn up, and, and, and you can't take them with you, but that the things of Christ are eternal. I, we, we, we can't comprehend that, right? We can know it, but we can't comprehend it. You can't comprehend eternity. I can't comprehend eternity. But if we have the faith to believe it, to live for it, one thing the scriptures tell us is we will not be ashamed. There will be no moment of eternity where we will reg regret anything we did for Christ on this earth, any sacrifice for Christ on this earth, any mindset shift for Christ on this earth. Not one moment of eternity will there be regret. You and I are the servants and children of the King of kings and the Lord of lords who only hath immortality. The creator of the universe knows you by name, has called you out of darkness into his light if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, has blessed you with all spiritual blessing in heavenly places if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior. Unto him is all honor and all power. And that's your identity. If you have believed, you're a follower of Christ. It's not just something you do. It is who you are intrinsically. You aren't just following Christ. You are a follower of Christ. Are you living like it? 
that's what we're going to draw out in our application. But before we draw out our application to believers, perhaps you've been sitting here today and you have heard these words and you've said, Pastor, that's not me. I'm not in Christ. I'm not one who has accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. I'm not a follower of Christ. I am not a child of the King. Well, you can be. The Bible says that we're all sinners, and because we're sinners, we have been separated from God in fellowship. We cannot have fellowship with God because God is holy, and I am sinful. So we are separated from God, but God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to become a man. That man never once having sinned. That man never once having fallen out of fellowship with his father. That man deserving of no penalty for sin because he had committed no sin. And yet the Bible says that that one who was in fellowship with his father, he, he went to the cross and on the cross, the worst part of that pain, the worst part of that suffering, the worst part of that shame, as he was beaten and he was torn and he was bruised and, and his, his blood was shed, was not the physical anguish, but that as 2 Corinthians 5 tells us, God the Father took your sin and my sin and he poured the punishment, the wrath for our sin on Christ. He hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God punished Jesus for your sin so that you would not have to face the eternal punishment for it yourself. But Jesus didn't stay dead. The Bible says three days later, Jesus arose from the dead. In that he died, he paid the price for our sin with his shed blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. In that he rose again, he validated that the Lord was pleased with him. He validated that he was doing it in the Lord's name. God the Father put his stamp of approval on all the sacrifice that Jesus did. And it proves that if Jesus lives, so too can we. That eternal life is ours, if only we will accept it on God's terms. And Jesus gave those terms himself. He that believeth is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That doesn't just mean that you know Jesus died on the cross. It doesn't just mean you know that Jesus rose from the dead. The Bible says in James, even the devils believe and tremble. But to accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, is to, as Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1 says, repent of your dead works, set aside anything and everything that you might be trusting in to secure your place with God, to earn your way to God, to be right with God through your own works, through your own efforts, through your own uh, intentions, good intentions, and to place your full faith and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And the Bible says, all who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. So that if you will cry out to the Lord, acknowledge your sin, place your full faith and trust in Christ's finished work, you will be saved. If you've not done that today, may I encourage you to make today the day where you come to, to that decision, where you flee to the cross of Christ for forgiveness of sin. For we who are in Christ, you bear the indwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ's name is written on you. You are washed, you are covered in his blood. When God looks at you, he does not see your sin. He sees the finished work of Jesus Christ. He sees righteousness, right? That we might be made the righteousness of God in him, the Bible tells us. So you have been made the righteousness of God in him. Are you living like it? Four points of application. Flee the world's affections and lusts. As I read these applications, I want to note once again that Paul is speaking to Timothy as a minister, but that this does apply to all of us. We are called to live within the context of this mindset, to live dead to the world with its affections and lusts. The Bible says in 1 John 2, 15 through 17, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and this is, this is the definition of the world. That doesn't mean you can't love cars or uh, in the sense of use a car or, or in the sense of, of, of 
use the things of this world, but placing your affections on this world, on the temporal things of this world, and specifically here, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The things of this world will pass away. The will of God, performing the will of God, is eternal. Do you believe it? Galatians chapter 5, verse 24. And they that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. Flee the affections and lusts of this world. Hearken back to that message a couple of weeks ago. I'm not inherently saying you should not own material possessions. I'm not inherently saying you should reject any comforts in this life. I am saying that you and you alone know your affections and lusts. You and you alone know the degree to which your interaction with the world and truth is a love for the things that define this world or not. You must, however, flee those affections and lusts. Flee them. Run the other way. Know yourself in Christ well enough to know where your weaknesses lie. Search your heart. Ask the Lord to search your heart. We memorized Psalm 139, 23 and 24 a few months ago. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Pray that prayer. Have a heart ready to receive the Lord's answer. Is your heart imbalanced in the things of this world? Are your affections and lusts placed upon the things of this world? Have you given in to those things? Know your propensities unto a heart defilement. Flee from those dangers, turning instead to the righteousness of God. Point number two, follow after the righteousness which is of God by faith. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, meekness, those were the six that Paul spoke to Timothy about. The things which we read in 1 John 2 a moment ago, he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The righteousness which is of God by faith. Your health can be taken from you. Your possessions can be taken from you. Your life can be taken from you. But no man, no government, no system, no power in this world or the next can take the rewards of eternal life away from you. So lay hold on that. We'll get to that in a moment. The world assesses value in any number of ways. I talked to you about the thrift stores and the Craigslist and such. Things that people are giving away for free because they have no more value to them are things which can be very valuable to me. One man's trash is another man's treasure, the old adage says. And yet for any believer, there's no question where our value lies. It lies in the eternal because the one who saved us from the depths of our sin, the one who cannot lie, who has never lied, who has never failed, has told us so, and it's ours to believe it, to obey it. Point number three, fight the good fight of faith. Ephesians 6 verse 12 tells us that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness, in high places. Unto this end, Paul exhorts those at Ephesus to put on the whole armor of God there in Ephesians 6, that they may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand. Christian, we're in a battle. It's a battle for the souls of men, who Paul described in 2 Timothy 2.26 as those who have been taken captive by the devil at his will. It's a battle to preserve the faith that was once delivered to the saints, that it may endure for the next generation. Throughout every generation, culture has sought to snuff out the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're seeing it hard and heavy today. Tearing down monuments, getting rid of uh, everything that might have a vestige of, of, of God's name in society, um, uh, seeking to censor the truth, wherever it might find its way out. This is uh, somewhat uh, new or at least renewed in our culture, but it's always been the same. Every culture and every time, the philosophers of that age have prophesied that the gospel of Jesus Christ would be dead in a generation. 
and yet the gates of hell have never, never prevailed against the church. This is our battle. This group is preserving the faith for our grandchildren and their grandchildren. We are a part of that scarlet thread of faith from beginning to end that traces through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Judah and David and Solomon and Joseph and Mary and Jesus and the apostles and through to us today. So Paul exhorts Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. See, if you're in a battle, then you don't have time for the affections and lusts of this world. They're going to weigh you down in this battle. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. If you know you're going out there into battle, you're not going to put on a bunch of heavy stuff you don't need. You're not going to spend your time, waste your time, when you should be preparing, honing yourself for the battle at hand. We go into this battle every day. We protect one another. We seek to deliver hearts and minds from the captivity of the enemy. And if we're going to war a good warfare, fight the good fight of faith, then we need to be ready to endure that hardness. Point four, lay hold on the deepest rewards of life eternal. I've said it in any number of contexts throughout Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of God. Keep your eye on the prize. There is a finish line. We're in the race if you're a believer. We're headed toward that finish line. Set aside the sins. Set aside the weights. Don't be encumbered by those things that are going to make the battle harder. And run with patience, run with endurance, one step at a time, one day at a time. When I'm talking to the people in the jail and I'm exhorting them unto the steps that they can take in order to get their lives together, it can be so overwhelming for them. When they think of their addictions and their, their interpersonal relationships and getting a job and finding a place to live that's not the drug house that they were in before, uh, all of their friends who are addicts, so they can't go back to them because they'll end up back in the world, and all of these complications. And uh, there are times where you can begin to kind of see their eyes start to glaze over, and you can see that them tense up just considering the magnitude of the mountain that is before them that they have to climb. And when I see that, I, I, I stop for a second and I look at them, whatever their name is, and I say, hey, how do you eat an elephant? The same way you did a chicken. The same way you did a fish. One bite at a time. One step at a time. You take the bite, you cut it off, you put it in your mouth, you chew it, you swallow it. You cut another bite, you put it in your mouth, you chew it. It doesn't matter how big the obstacle is. You conquer it the same way. Faithfulness, patience, perseverance, endurance. You don't necessarily have to run the fastest. Just set a pace to endure, to grow. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. A big help, though, along that way, if you want to endure, Shed the weight. Lay aside the things that are encumbering you. What is encumbering you today? Paul exhorted Timothy, flee from the love of money. Flee from the desire to be rich. And lay a hold instead on eternal life. Follow after godliness, meekness and love and faith and virtues. How are you doing today? 
What is encumbering you? What's in your way from this fight, from this race? What's slowing you down? What's encumbering you along the path? Flee the world's affections and lusts. Follow after the righteousness which is of God by faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.